You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 13, The Battle of Quebec. General Jeffrey Amherst took command of North American operations following his victory at Lewisburg at the end of 1758. Around the same time, William Pitt granted Colonel James Wolfe, now breveted to the rank of Major General, an independent command to capture Quebec. Wolfe returned to Lewisburg in February 1759 to prepare for a spring attack on the last great French stronghold in Canada. Wolfe had an impressive command for someone who was only 32 years old, but he was not inexperienced. The son of British General Edward Wolfe, James had joined his father's regiment in 1740 at the age of 13. He had considerable military action in Europe during the War of Austrian Succession, known as King George's War in America, rising to the rank of lieutenant colonel. When the Seven Years' War began, he became a full colonel. His bravery and gallantry in Europe during 1757 caught William Pitt's attention. Pitt decided to send him to America, where he served as second-in-command to General Amherst at the Battle of Lewisburg. After Lewisburg fell in 1758, Wolfe returned to London on sick leave. For years he had had consumption, which flared up at times, and also killed his brother. Historians speculate that he had tuberculosis. In any event, the most recent bout did not keep him from returning to take command of the army sent against Quebec. All three of Wolfe's subordinates for the operation, Robert Montkin, Lord George Townsend, and James Murray, were older than Wolfe, and more importantly, came from socially superior families. They all resented Wolfe's command and did not work well with him. Still, they were soldiers and would obey orders. With 8,500 regulars to take the city, Wolfe set out to conquer Quebec. Complications departing Louisbourg led to a late start in June 4, 1759. By June 28, the force had occupied the Ile d'Orléans just across the St. Lawrence River from Quebec. The French commander, General Montcalm himself, had organized Quebec's defenses. His well-designed defenses frustrated Wolfe at every turn, preventing him from getting across the river, where he could begin a proper siege. Over the course of the summer, Wolfe tried to find a way to break the defense. The British began shelling the city from a distance on July 12th. While it did cause some harm, it presented no chance of forcing a surrender. The French well knew that this would be their last stand in Canada. If they did not win here, the game was over. Montcalm, his soldiers, and the civilians in general were determined to block the British at all costs. Frustrated with the slow pace of things, Wolfe tried a bold frontal assault, leading his infantry six miles downriver and marching on the city. The attack failed as entrenched French and Canadian forces killed or wounded nearly 500 soldiers while taking very little damage themselves. 
Wolf then turned to a scorched earth policy. He burned and destroyed all the farms and outbuildings for miles around Quebec, allowing his men to rape and kill civilians at will. He hoped to anger the French to the point where they would leave their protective walls and come out for an open fight. Montcalm, however, refused to take the bait. His men were well supplied behind seemingly impregnable defenses. Montcalm had concentrated virtually all of Canada's remaining military forces in Quebec, meaning his regulars and militia totaled nearly 15,000. This number, however, included many questionable militia as Montcalm was scraping the bottom of the barrel for men. Montcalm did have a few good regiments of top-notch French regulars and some experienced militia against the smaller force of 8,500 British attackers. Even so, Wolfe believed his well-trained regulars could prevail in a traditional face-to-face land battle if he could provoke one. As he said, My antagonist has wisely shut himself up in inaccessible entrenchments so that I can't get at him without spilling a torrent of blood, and that perhaps to little purpose. The Marquis de Montcalm is at the head of a great number of bad soldiers and I am at the head of a small number of good ones that wish for nothing so much as to fight him. But the wary old fellow avoids an action, doubtful of the behavior of his army. To make matters worse, Wolfe's troops began to drop from disease after spending several hot summer months on a swampy island. More than a third of them had become incapacitated by sickness. Wolfe himself became so sick that he was bedridden for several days in August. His greatest fear seemed to be that he would die ignominiously from disease before he had a chance to fight a major battle as a commander. In desperation, Wolfe convened a council of war with his three generals to get their views on another all-out infantry assault on the French lines. Wolfe remained on bad terms with his commanders, who mostly seemed to be waiting for him to fail or die. He did not really want their opinions, but military etiquette required such counsels prior to any major operation, particularly one that might go terribly wrong and for which the commander did not want to be singled out for blame. His three generals unanimously rejected the plan. He could have overruled them, but was so sick that he felt doing so might be seen as acting out of delirium. Wolfe knew that if he did not do anything by the end of September, he would have to retreat in failure the naval fleet would have to leave before winter ice locked in their ships. The army could not remain without naval support. By all appearances, Wolfe saw his two likely outcomes as dying from disease or overseeing a retreat back to Lewisburg, having accomplished nothing. Either way, he knew his subordinates would blame him for the failure. One of them, Townsend, was also a member of Parliament and a friend of William Pitt. Wolfe's reputation as a capable officer would be ruined. But just as all seemed lost, Wolfe finally received some helpful advice. Captain Robert Stobo is an unsung hero of this adventure so far. Stobo had served with Colonel Washington way back at the Battle of Fort Necessity in 1754, or as I like to call it, Episode 5. He was one of the hostages that the French took in order to guarantee the return of French prisoners per Washington's agreement. While held as a hostage at Fort Duquesne, Stobo had drawn a sketch of the fort's defenses that he gave to a friendly Indian to aid a British attack. This was the sketch that a tribal chief provided to General Braddock as he began his ill-fated attempted assault on Fort Duquesne in 1755. When the French captured Braddock's baggage after his death in battle, they found Stobo's sketches. The French tried and convicted Stobo as a spy. 
He only lived because the order to cut off his head and stick it on a pike outside the fort had to go back to France for ratification. Officials back in France never gave that approval. Stobo, who had moved back to Quebec already, figured his best bet was to attempt an escape. On his third attempt, in May 1759, Stobo finally escaped the French and promptly offered his services to General Wolfe. Stobo told Wolfe about a relatively unguarded footpath that led from the river up to the Plains of Abraham, just a few miles west of Quebec. If Wolfe could get sufficient men and cannon onto the plains, he would either force Montcalm into an infantry battle that he wanted, or he could bring up siege cannons and take out the city wall. Wolfe told no one about this secret path, not even his top generals. He even sent Stobo away, asking him to carry some important documents to General Amherst. Armed with this secret information, on September 5th, Wolfe commanded his troops to move upriver. His officers assumed that he had taken their advice to look for an entry point many miles upriver to cut off enemy supplies. His force of 3,600 moved past Quebec to the point his subordinates had recommended. A few days later, he sent another thousand men, leaving his original base mostly with sick who were not combat ready. Wolfe continued to keep all of his officers in the dark and without further orders until 8.30 p.m. on September 12th. At that time, he ordered his army to board ships at 9 o'clock, 30 minutes later, and sail back down the river about two miles to the secret footpath that Stobo had identified. By all appearances, Wolfe did not seem terribly optimistic that his plan was going to work. He handed over his will and instructions for dissemination of his papers and other personal effects in the event of his death. He planned to go ashore in one of the first landing craft and be at the head of the invasion force. Still terribly sick, it looked like he simply wanted to go out in a blaze of glory. The boats ferried the first troops downriver around 2 a.m. French sentries heard the boats. French-speaking officers, however, called out that they were bringing supplies down to the city and they were permitted to pass without further challenge. Wolfe climbed the footpath with the advance force and reached the Plains of Abraham without incident. With him was the highly capable Lieutenant Colonel William Howe, the youngest brother of Colonel George Howe, who was killed at the first raid near Fort Carillon in 1758. If you don't remember, see episode 10. The advance force took out a small French sentry camp, but not before the French sent a runner to warn Montcalm of the attack. By 4 a.m., only Wolfe and the 200-man advance force were on the Plains of Abraham. The first full wave was still disembarking at the river. French artillery fired on the second wave as it moved downstream. Wolfe probably expected to face a more effective French defense. If he were killed with the advance guard, his second-in-command, General Moncton, would probably call off the attack and pull back. Moncton had already expressed disapproval of the plan. But at least Wolfe would die nobly, trying to engage the enemy, rather than suffer a death from disease without glory. But the failure of the French to mount much of any defense left Wolfe surprisingly alive. Not sure what to do next, he ordered his commanders, still disembarking at the river below, to halt the landing. Fortunately for him, they ignored his order, and the main force continued to make its way to the plains. By dawn, seven battalions stood on the plains of Abraham in line of battle. Five more battalions were still making their way up the footpath from the river. So far, they had only met a few French skirmishers 
presumably sent out to see what was going on. They even managed to bring up two six-pound brass cannon. Now, the six-pound, of course, refers to the weight of the cannonballs they threw, not the weight of the much heavier cannons themselves. I have always thought of the Plains of Abraham with some lofty name with a biblical reference. It turns out, though, the name comes from some guy named Abraham Martin who settled in the area in the 1630s and had begun farming there. It was a wide, flat plain covering several hundred acres, perfect for a traditional line battle favored by professional European officers like Wolfe and Montcalm. Now, French General Montcalm had spent all night setting up defenses northwest of the city at Beauport. British sailors had put out markers in the river near Beauport presumably as guides for landing craft to avoid hidden sandbars. It was a ruse to distract Montcalm, and it worked. Montcalm assumed the British transports traveling upriver were a ruse to distract him from the landing at Beauport, not the other way around. Instead, the British army stood several thousand strong on the Plains of Abraham, facing the southeastern walls of the city, one of its weakest points. By 7 a.m., Montcalm came back to the Plains of Abraham, apparently stunned by the British infantry lines now facing him. He saw the cannons and saw the British beginning their entrenchments for a siege. He sent for reinforcements, but knew they would take hours to arrive. At present, he could only field about 4,500 soldiers to face the similarly sized British force. In fact, though, the British were not entrenching. They did not have any more than the two small cannons they already had on the field. Wolfe expected to be dead by now and to have his generals retreating. He had not planned properly for a full-scale siege. His army's entrenching tools were still sitting in the ships at the river below. His men were only lying down on the field to make themselves smaller targets to the snipers and French cannon firing at them. If French reinforcements did arrive, the British would be surrounded on three sides, with the only avenue of retreat being that small footpath that had taken them all night to climb. Despite their incredible luck so far, they were still facing the very real possibility of a slaughter. Montcalm, however, did not wait. He did not know that more British were not coming, nor that they could not mount a proper siege. Montcalm, therefore, sent his infantry forward to meet the British on the field of battle. When the French lines advanced to within 150 yards, they fired. This was still too far to hit much of anyone with muskets. A few British fell, but the lines of professionals quickly closed the gaps. One of those hit, though, was Wolfe himself. He received a shot through the wrist, but casually wrapped it in a handkerchief and continued with his duties. As the French reloaded, British line stood impassively, still not firing back. There were too many militia in the French lines, and as the regulars reloaded, the militia began to take cover or fall to the ground to avoid fire. As a result, the French line began to fall apart. Individual units advanced, but did not maintain a solid line of battle. When the French got within 60 yards of the British line, the British regulars fired a destructive volley, followed by a bayonet charge into the enemy. The already broken French line now fled back to the city walls. The only return fire came from fields off to the sides, where enemy snipers could pick off only a few of the advancing British but one of those few that was hit was once again General Wolfe. This time, he sustained two fatal shots to his torso. His second-in-command, Moncton, also sustained serious injuries around the same time. 
General Murray had led his men on a wild charge that had taken him away from the main force. Also, Wolfe's aide, Isaac Barra, a name you might want to remember, also took a shot to the face. He would live, but was out of commission for now. Finally, General Townsend came forward to take command. He quickly re-established the British lines and returned order. By noon, both sides had suffered around 700 casualties each. Less than 10% of those were deaths. But given the medical care of the day, many of the wounded would not survive long. On the French side, Montcalm was among the wounded and out of commission. He would die the following morning. The next two highest-ranking French officers had also been killed. Eventually, the civilian governor of Canada, Vaudreuil, confirmed with the highest-ranking officers still available and decided to evacuate the city. The main army would leave and try to link up with relief forces for a counterattack. Meanwhile, 2,200 local militia were left in charge of defending Quebec against the British Army. No one seemed to have much hope in them, as they left behind with them papers on how to ask for surrender terms. As the French regulars departed the city, they left behind these militia, along with large amounts of supplies and ammunition. The cautious Townsend did not dare send his infantry against the walls of the city, where the artillery could cut them down. Rather, he waited for more British artillery to arrive so that he could begin a proper siege. The British siege began the next day as British cannon finally arrived for use. The British did not even bother to fire their artillery as their entrenchment lines moved closer to the city over several days. The cannons only had to sit in the entrenchments to deter a French charge as the British dug ever closer entrenchments toward the British fort walls. Defensive fire from the French was largely ineffective, and by September 17th, the British were in a position to open fire point-blank on the walls of the city. As they prepared to open fire, the commander of Quebec's remaining forces offered terms of surrender. Townsend surprised the defenders by agreeing to all of their terms. Defenders were granted the honors of war, the British would protect the civilians and their property, they were free to continue to practice their Roman Catholic religion, French militiamen were free to remain in the city as long as they gave up their arms and swore an oath of loyalty to King George. Any possible French attempt to string out the negotiations until a relief force could arrive had failed because the British simply agreed to everything. And there was good reason for this. Townsend's position remained tenuous. If a relief column did arrive, his forces would be in a dangerous position. Further, his small force required the cooperation of the civilians. He simply did not have enough soldiers to fight off a relief force and control a hostile population. In fact, a relief force was only about one day away when the British occupied Quebec. When the French arrived, they did not have the equipment to lay siege now that the British were behind the walls of Quebec. So the French relief force constructed a fort nearby and waited for an opportunity to retake Quebec. By mid-October, the French fleet needed to leave. No one really wanted to stay in Quebec for the winter, but all able-bodied soldiers were needed for its defense. Mockton, still recovering from his wounds, opted to leave for New York. Townshend decided to return to London. The most junior general, Murray, remained in command. His men would have to endure a difficult winter on short rations. However, Quebec had fallen and the British stood victorious. Next week, Canada becomes British and Britain gets a new king.
My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.